I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, it's Sharon, and here's where it gets interesting. Raise your hand if you want salon perfect nails for just $2 a manicure. Yeah, me too. With the Alvin June Manny system, you can say goodbye to expensive services that take hours and hours and love your nails more than ever. I would know I've been doing it for years. Get 20% off your first Manny system with code PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. That's PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast on the road, the occasional segment where we actually get out of the office and meet the people who make the decisions in politics rather than the people who wibble on about the decisions in politics uh, from the comfort of a journalist's desk. Uh, in that context, I'm honoured to be joined uh, by the Shadow Secretary of State for Northern Ireland, Ivan Lewis, from his magnificent office in Westminster with a view of the Shard and the London Eye. Um, Ivan... I'm of a generation for whom Northern Ireland was in the news every week, every day. It was one of the most pressing issues. Um, Then, mercifully, for all the right reasons, the salience of it dropped right down. Last week, we had this this case of uh, a suspect in a terrorism trial who walked away from court because it transpired. Uh, He had had a letter of assurance that he was no longer considered on the run. Uh, And this obviously reopened a lot of of wounds and left a lot of people very angry. So just from the opposition's point of view, are you satisfied now with the way this has been handled? Yeah, we fully support the inquiry that David Cameron has established. I think the first thing to say about Northern Ireland that we should always remember is the tremendous progress that has been made over the last uh, 15 years. But it's true that this uh, judgment came in the context of a very difficult year, a lot of fragility, uh, an increase in the activity of dissident terrorists that poses a real threat to security. Uh, Loyalist protests around um, decisions about flying flags, about parades. So the judgment last week came in that context of a situation where people are increasingly concerned about peace and stability. To what extent is this, do you think, connected to uh, economic optimism? Because there was a period, obviously, when you had a peace dividend that people talked about in relation to Northern Ireland, also picking up a little bit of traction from what we referred to when it was fashionable to do so, as the, the sort of Celtic tiger phenomenon in the Republic. Uh, these factors are now spent a little bit, aren't they? And, and presumably that is going to be something that is feeding to a high level of youth unemployment. You're going to have a lot of angry young men on the streets of Northern Ireland who could feasibly be susceptible to a kind of new generation of, of political radicalisation. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, when the Good Friday Agreement was signed, youth unemployment in Northern Ireland was down at 9%. It's now up at 22%. That is a stark illustration of the challenges that we face. Of course, a sense of social exclusion, alienation, fuels the tensions and the strains that exist. And that's across the community divide. So if people don't see any uh, prospect of employment, uh, there's intergenerational deprivation that passes from one generation to the next. There is insufficient jobs. 
all of that fuels a question mark about what is the benefits of this peace process for me, my family and my immediate community. Uh, and that's why, whilst all of the emphasis in Northern Ireland often is around political issues and the past, those things are incredibly important. Actually, the issue that will really change things generationally in Northern Ireland is jobs, is educational yeah, It's very interesting, isn't it? Because one of the other things, peculiar features about the, the Northern Irish economy is the much higher proportion of public sector employment um, compared to other regions um, and areas of the UK. Um, and I'm just going to sort of slightly shamelessly pivot now towards something because I know that you are interested in these questions of how you, re- how you reform the public sector. At a time of austerity, you know, taking the area that you're now worthy, uh, you have the portfolio for as a sort of crucible of change, there's going to be a long-term challenge in Northern Ireland when currently you cannot sustain that level of employment by the public sector, by governments. No, that's absolutely true. I mean, uh, the difficulty is the way that you approach that. There has to be, over time, a shift in, in the over-dependence on public sector jobs. There has to be a support for a much more enterprising entrepreneurial culture. Uh, but in the context of Northern Ireland, where the stakes are so high, that has to be done in a sensitive way. It's predominantly, of course, the responsibility of the Northern Ireland executive, of Peter Robinson and Martin McGuinness. Most of these issues are devolved. Uh, and what has to be said is that the current government's welfare reform agenda, which whilst welfare reform is technically devolved, actually the Northern Ireland executive has to implement the UK government's welfare policies or it faces a financial penalty from the Treasury. That is causing many, many difficulties. Of course, you've also got to remember, and as an outsider, this is something that has really struck me in the last five months since I've been in this role, the impact, the trauma of the violence uh, over many, many years is very acute. It's not just a small number of people. It's affected a very, very large number of people. So, of course, Northern Ireland needs an agenda which is about reforming the economy, uh, reforming the welfare system, changing the way that public services are provided. But it's very, very important that that is done in a, in a sensitive way. It's done on a phased basis. And we understand that in Northern Ireland, the stakes are very high. Because if all of that goes wrong, it's the extremists, the paramilitaries, which it will exploit young people's alienation. OK, well, let's move right range then back to, to mainland UK then, because the, I think you've you made the case, rightly, that it's, it's, it's such exceptional circumstances in Northern Ireland. But those same questions, welfare reform, public sector reform, these are going to be huge challenges for a Labour government if it comes in 2015, sort of irrespective of, of what the, the fiscal, the, the exact fiscal timetable of what you, what the... Labour administration would be expected to do. So you know, you've written before, you've written for the New Statesman about what a Labour agenda for reform of the economy, reform of the state would be. How do you see that now progressing as part of Labour's offer? Well, I think it's absolutely uh, central. Uh, we've got to have a situation where, if you like, what we have from this government is ideologically is a withered state Uh, with the view that somehow the big society will move in and rescue uh, communities and the country. That clearly is not working. It's extraordinary that we no longer hear two words in any of David Cameron's speeches, and that's the big society. This was this man's big idea. And that demonstrates that his failure to detoxify the Tory brand is a major problem for the Conservative Party. But from Labour's point of view, there is no doubt that towards our end, the end of period we were in government, there was the sense that we only ever talked about the state uh, and the market. 
And we talked often about an over-centralised state. We gave the impression that everything could be changed from Westminster and Whitehall. Uh, and in my view, we have to move away from that. Uh, we have to recognise that, first of all, we'll have to do more with less. That is the reality in terms of the fiscal climate. Do you we think will that inherit. has been fully understood by the rest of the, the Labour Party? I mean, it's still quite a contentious thing to say. I've been to Labour conferences, Fabian conferences. You, you get a, some, There's some serious bridling at that assertion still. Well, it's, it's reality, and I think it's very, very important that Ed Miliband and Ed Balls uh, have made that very, very clear. Uh, having said that, uh, the idea that having served in government for uh, nine years, that you cannot be transformational in terms of recognising that by actually having a very different approach to public services, a much greater role uh, in terms of people power, uh, a lot less power in the hands of vested interests, uh, that you can actually, I think, begin to improve uh, public services, not just by the traditional top-down over-centralised approach, but by really empowering people, giving communities a much bigger say. And I think uh, one of the regrets I have about our period in offices, uh, we didn't talk about community and family anywhere near as much as we should have done. As I say, we talked about government, we talked about the market. Why family? What do you mean? Because the politics of family is, is still often seen through the prism of whether certain models of family life are, are somehow sort of morally better than others or, or socially desirable. So what, what might Labour have said about family that it didn't say? Well, first of all, it isn't making judgments about the nature of families or the shape of families. It's recognising what matters to people. If you're going to be relevant in a world where people are increasingly cynical about politics, what matters to people? What matters to people is their family, it's their job, it's the neighbourhood that they live in. If politicians don't speak in that language in don't rec in, and don't recognise that many of the things that are about improving people's not just standard of living in the context of uh, the standard of living crisis, but also improving people's quality of life, is the interaction between government uh, and family no, and community, I, I then you miss the point. Yeah, but, no, I understand that. If it's I, just a transaction between the state and the individual... But this gets us into the territory, I mean, and I've followed with interest, great interest um, Ed Miliband's, the Hugo Young lecture, talking about, about the relational state and, and changing the, the culture of the way that government is delivered. The bit that was missing for me from that analysis is where it says the way, the, what kind of state delivery that happens now will have to change. In other words, actually... I'll give two examples to help. Yeah. And, and I'm not announcing Labour Party policy now yeah. because Ed Balls will, um, will, 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 will not be very happy. But I'll give two examples. There are two big issues, big challenges that face society. Uh, one is the educational underperformance of children, particularly children from disadvantaged backgrounds. All of the solutions over the years about that has been about the quality of leadership of schools, about the curriculum, about teaching. All of those things ma uh, matter massively. But what also matters, particularly for the most disadvantaged young people, is they don't have one trusted adult in their life. Not one trusted adult. They go home and there isn't anybody who cares about education or even relates to it. Why couldn't we galvanise the thousands of people out there who would love to mentor young people in that situation. That isn't about a, a massively, uh, largely funded state programme. It's about galvanising the potential 
of citizens who would want to make a difference to that uh, whole range of young people who currently underperform educationally, and we pay a heavy price for that. The second example, one of the great challenges facing our society is the ageing society. And the debate often is about how are you going to pay for long-term care. These are very, very difficult uh, issues. Andy Burnham, absolutely right to talk about integrating health and social care. Uh, But actually, one of the biggest single factors in terms of the ageing society is loneliness uh, and isolation. Again, there are large numbers of people out there who would not have to be, in fact, shouldn't be paid professionals, paid social workers, paid care providers, who would be more than happy to take responsibility for supporting an isolated, lonely, older person. So it's not always reaching for the state solution. It's the state recognising the scale of some of those challenges, but also wanting to ensure that the solutions are done in partnership with people, not just through state solutions and large amounts of public money. I entirely understand that. Is there not a danger, though, that unless you're clearer about saying... And the priority in terms of where money is invested or how funding works will therefore have to be more in one direction than another. It sounds as if you're saying we liked the bit of the big society that was all about community and support. We just think it's... One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. And not either or, because we don't want to actually touch the way the, the state provision is already there, because for whatever reason, that's Labour's sacred cow, and you know, we're not going to get into that fight now. And so it just sounds fiscally implausible. Right? It sounds like you're just saying we can do more, but we're not going to yet dare to say what we do less of. Well, that's not the case. When we publish our manifesto, we'll have to be exceptionally clear about our top priorities and where the vast... Uh, uh, share of public resources that are available are going to go, whether it's on affordable housing, whether it's affordable childcare, whether it's protecting uh, school budgets, uh, whether it's ensuring that we the health service is able to respond to the challenges of the future. Uh, but equally, I've just given you two examples of some of two of the biggest challenges facing our society. One which is about dignity of older people, the other which is about the underperformance of kids from poorer backgrounds. Uh, And I've given you two solutions which are not about uh, top-down, centralised state programmes spending large amounts of public money. It's about galvanising the public and the community to be part of creating that better and fairer society. Creating the better and fairer society that we believe in is not just about the state and the market. And too often when we're in power, uh, we gave that impression. We want to change that. And is there, do you go a step further then and say that actually government, when it is spending public money, can be in the business of commissioning outcomes or giving power to individuals through personal budgets, which I know you're interested in, to procure their own outcomes um, and it doesn't we're not we're sort of less hung up on who it is that's providing uh, we're more interested in whether they get the results well I think what's incredibly important is that we always ensure that there is public accountability uh, and public transparency in terms of those organizations that are involved in providing public services of course uh, in some public services there will always be a role uh, for the private sector of that there is no 
doubt. But the other way that you change public services, as well as public and private working together, is you empower the users of those services. I saw it for myself in social care. The transformational experiences that older people, disabled people, people with long-term conditions have had as a result of saying to them, you have control over your life and over your, your care. You are not dictated to by professionals. Uh, the transformational nature of those experiences is absolutely remarkable. And what this government has actually done is transferred power uh, largely to professionals and vested interests, actually. The opportunity for Labour is to actually um, go much further than that and put the, hands, uh, the power in the hands of parents, uh, of patients, of people who are worried about crime and antisocial behaviour in their neighbourhoods. And also, in that context, we have got to dismantle the silos which start in Whitehall and end up in neighbourhoods in terms of public, the spending of public money. We have got to look at things in a much more integrated uh, way. Is the reality not, though, that the Labour Party being what it is, if you want to do that kind of transformation in the approach uh, in government, fairly early on you will run into resistance from, bluntly speaking, public sector trade unions who are inclined still to see here the words public sector reform and think wicked plot to privatise everything mm. not to be trusted. And you know, how much confidence do you have that that relationship can be managed uh, so that you actually get a real transformation in the way services are delivered? Don't underestimate the frustration of frontline workers about the waste that they see and about the fact that there is not, there are not joined up services in terms of the work that they're trying to do, whether it's on the front line of the health service, whether it's in schools, whether it's in the Shore Start centres and all the rest of it. So I have never bought into this argument that you do reform to people. The only way we can change public services in a way that is meaningful is to actually take frontline workers with us. Now, of course, we're going to have to deliver some tough messages uh, around vested interests and around giving away power. Because a lot of this is about giving away power, whether it's about central government giving power away to local government, lo local government transferring power to communities. But I would say that um, New Labour got many, many things right. One of the things I think started to go wrong was that the word choice became the panacea. For me, choice was always only one manifest manifestation of control. And I think what we uh, must be clear about, if we're talking about inequality, the one thing that middle class people and wealthy people take for granted for a lot of their lives is they have a much greater level of control over their lives uh, than people who are poorer and from more disadvantaged backgrounds. So this is also about creating a fairer uh, society. It's about transferring power. Now, I also believe if we are lecturing uh, vested interests in the private sector uh, about things having to change, uh, which I think um, we, we, we are right to have done, then we also have to be consistent. And where uh, vested interests are getting in the way of the kind of better, improved society and services that so I I'm refer to, we have to, be, we have to be willing uh, to, to, to address that. What's but that's not, about attacking, that's not about attacking frontline workers, often low-paid workers, who are doing an amazing job keeping our care system and our education system going. But as long as you say vested interests, it keeps it nicely abstract. But actually, at some stage, that means who exactly? Who is it who you anticipate resisting reform to government under a, a Labour administration? 
Well, I think that there are many professionals who work, for example, in the health and care system, who do not treat uh, patients or treat relatives of patients as partners in the decisions that are made about those people's lives. Um, and I think that, you know, uh, Ed Miliband recently talked about parents being able collectively to call in the inspector when they're unhappy with the performance of their local schools. Now, instinctively, uh, professionals feel that that can be quite threatening. Uh, but I think that over time, people will accept that changing the power dynamic is actually in everybody's uh, interest. It's not easy, but I don't think uh, the, the notion that you have to reform public services by attacking frontline workers was ever right, and I don't think it's right today. Okay, last question. Um, the This, as we've said, you know, is, was the theme of a big speech that Ed Miliband made recently. Um, one of the criticisms that is, is sometimes made is that, you know, Ed will say these things and they are ticked off part of the agenda. Um, but actually, you don't necessarily have confidence that um, it will there will, it will be sustained as a story. And the, well, you know, Labour's account of what it plans to do will move on to something else. These are, because, as we've just been saying, there are so many potential obstacles to this. It's the sort of thing that has to be embarked on in the, sort of the first hundred days of a Labour government, isn't it? Look, I think Ed Miliband's actually made it very clear. New economy where actually we shouldn't say that there needs to be a choice between profit and ethics, because most companies that I talk to, people who work in the private sector, understand that those have always been uh, false choices. Uh, but secondly, I'll never forget the uh, meeting that I had uh, with Ed, the first meeting I had with Ed after he became leader and I'd been appointed to the Shadow Cabinet. We had a two and a half hour meeting. And uh, the passionate part of Ed that was really, really good at that meeting was when he talked about his commitment to a new state. He doesn't believe in an over-centralised, top-down state. He is as passionate about that as he is about the need to create a new economy, which works for the many, not just a few at the top. And to be honest, there is a debate about how we fight the next election. There are some people who would argue that we fight it on a very narrow prospectus. Uh, my view is if we fight it on a very, very narrow prospectus, it's going to be incredibly difficult to enthuse and persuade people that they want change. The danger is they would stick with status quo. I believe we've got to focus on the cost of living crisis where people know there is a big disparity between their everyday lives and what the government says about economic recovery. But equally, we've got to focus on what kind of community, what kind of society do you and your family want to live in? And if we're able to do that, I think we'll be able to do what's crucially important if Labour is to win. We have to reassure people where they have doubts about us, uh, on economic credibility, on immigration, on welfare. They have anxieties. We have to reassure them. But we also have to be the people that give people a sense of optimism and hope that it doesn't need to be like this. This country can have a better future. Right, and be now, now, the example I always give of this is the covenant that has always existed in our society. And that covenant is your kids and your grandkids always do better than you do. At the moment, that covenant has never been at a greater risk. And I think a Labour Party that can demonstrate to people we are determined to restore that covenant will actually resonate with 
a, a significant number of people who, who still need to be uh, persuading to vote for us at the next election. So you would reject the, the idea that is around, and I've obviously picked up and have written about, that um, that's all well and good, but the reality is it comes down to um, if enough Tories vote UKIP and you hang on to your Lib Dem switchers, you're going to nab those crucial seats in the Midlands and you'll get over the line. That is the counter-narrative to the one you've just given, that actually the reality of how Ed Miliband becomes Prime Minister is in the numbers. I don't think that that is correct. Ed Miliband will become Prime Minister as a result of doing two things. One is reassuring people where they have doubts. He's been very clear about saying that there were elements of our immigration policy that should have been different, uh, for example. He and Ed Balls have been very clear about saying that there will have to be a very tough approach to fiscal responsibility. So there is an understanding, and Rachel Reeves has been very clear about the fact uh, that the social security system welfare uh, has to be reformed, although we don't support some of the reforms of the current government. But alongside that, the work that John Crudders is doing on the policy review, the speech that Ed made recently on our commitment to people power, of devolving power and empowering uh, communities, of changing the role of the state. All of that is about what kind of society and what kind of country do you want to live in? Uh, and I think the Labour Party can win that argument and I think it can win it uh, convincingly. People do ask questions about their quality of life uh, as well as uh, their cost of living. And I think it's those two things coming together uh, that will give Labour a message that will be very, very compelling uh, coming into the election. OK, um, thanks very much. That's plenty of good chatter for our uh, most dedicated podcast listeners. Thanks very much. What does it take to move the needle on the world's toughest problems? On Better Heroes, we've sourced the globe for passionate individuals and visionary companies who are all on a mission to solve humanity's most urgent challenges. Like, can AI make the world a better place? How can we change our consumption habits to better serve the environment? And what can we do to make our financial systems work for all? This series will convince you that humanity can save itself and our planet. Better Heroes is by EY and produced by Human Group Media. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.